Good morning, Trinity Church. So good to see you this morning. Hey, it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Several years ago, an author by the name of Robert Fulgham wrote a, uh, a book about how to live life well. And he entitled it this, All I Really Need to Know. Some of you have probably read this before, but he said, Common Thoughts on Common Topics. And as we get into our passage this morning, I want to read for you just a couple of, of his comments because they set the tone for us in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you turn to 2 Peter 1, and let's listen in as Robert describes how he uh, learned everything he needed to know in kindergarten. He says, most of what I really need to know about how to live, what to do, and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not something I learned at the graduate school uh, mountain, but there in the kindergarten sandbox. Thank you very much. Is this better? Oh, gosh. Yeah, let's have a stand. No, don't you stand. We'll just get a stand. All right. How much of the first part did you miss? A lot of it. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. If I can get it in there. All right. Thad? I think I... Oh, wait. There it goes. No, there it doesn't. All right, I think we're good. Whew, the things we go through just to share thoughts. Okay, there was a book written a number of years ago by Robert Fulgham, and uh, it's, it's actually sold over 7 million copies. It's still being sold today, and it's what you see on the screen here. Uh, everything I really need to know about life I learned in kindergarten, Uncommon Thoughts on Common Topics. And I think it sets the place for us this morning in 2 Peter 1, because 2 Peter is really saying to us, you've got your faith, but you have to add things to it. So it's kind of like almost being in the kindergarten of the Christian life and then moving on through the grades as we add these different qualities. So Robert, I think, sets it in a very fun and humorous way as we start thinking about how do we grow. He says, most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not something I learned at the graduate school mountain, but there in the kindergarten sandbox. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Right? Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a, a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. You know, the older we get, that becomes more real, doesn't it? And as parents, we just wish we could. He says, when you go out into the world, watch for traffic. Hold hands, stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the plastic cup. The roots go down, the plant goes up. Goldfish, hamsters, white mice, and even the little seed in the plastic cup, they all die. So do we. And then remember the book about Dick and Jane and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look. Everything you need to know is in there, somewhere. The golden rule, love, basic sanitation, ecology, politics, sane living. He says, think of a, what a better world it would be if we all 
The whole world had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankets for a nap. Or if we had a basic policy in our nation and all of the other nations to always put things back where we found them and clean up our own messes. And it's still true that no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. I like what he's written because I think when we think about the Christian life and the Christian faith, these are some practical things we can apply as Christians. What if all of the Christian world acted in the way that Peter is talking about here in 2 Peter 1? What an amazing world it would be. And Peter says to us, look, you can have it all. You can have this life that God has designed for us here in 2 Peter 1 and throughout the New and Old Testament. It can be a life filled with, with hope and promise. It can be a life that is effective and productive. It, it can be a life uh, that doesn't cave in easily to corruption and to evil, uh, but powerfully resists those choices and the pain they produce. Uh, we can have a life that, that thrives and produces well-being in our actions and in our attitudes and in our thoughts. So this morning, we're going to dig in a little bit further. This is our third week in the sermon series. And today we begin to add things to our faith. And you notice the very first thing in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5, is this. He says, add to your faith goodness. Now, goodness is a very rare New Testament term. In fact, it only shows up four times in the entire New Testament. And what should um, amaze us and cause us to wonder a little bit is that three of those four times occur in Peter's writings. This was a term that he loved. He was very fond of this word goodness. In fact, you find it in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you go back just briefly, a couple of pages, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 9, he says to us, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare, and here's the word, some translations say the praises, others say the goodness, others say the excellence, of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So Peter looks at this quality, and he says this embodies God himself. He is a good God. He is an excellent God. We find the other two times that he mentions it right here in 2 Peter, chapter 1. He mentions it twice in this passage that we are looking at. So 2 Peter 1, 3, right? You take a look there. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, who has called us by his own glory, and again, goodness. So he describes again the goodness of God and how it is a quality that benefits us tremendously. Verse 5, he applies it to us. Notice he says, for this very reason, because of who God is, because of what he does, we are to make every effort to add to our faith the same quality, goodness. It's interesting, the only other place in the New Testament that it shows up is in Paul's writings, and that's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, you need to think about the things that are good. Listen to this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is uh, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or, and here's the word again, good or praiseworthy, think about these things. Now, it's interesting, most of the people in Paul's day were very, very familiar with this word. It's very rare in our biblical text, and even today, some people would say to us, well, what is truly good? But in his day, Peter's day and Paul's day, 
It was used in every setting in which you would find yourself. So you would use this word uh, heard in grocery stores. You would hear it in uh, school campuses. You would hear it in the hospital, on sports fields. You would hear it in the military. Uh, family members would say it. It was just about everywhere and in everything you did, this word would pop up. Goodness. And what it meant in their day was that whatever a person was doing or whatever you were watching uh, someone else do, uh, if it was as it was supposed to be, you would call it good. So uh, if you were fulfilling the purpose for what it was made, it was declared to be good. For instance, gals, if you bought a cake mix at the store and you bring it home and it makes a really awesome cake, first of all, it's your skill, obviously, right? But secondly, you would go, that's a great, good cake mix. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, if you buy a hair dryer and you bring it home and it dries your hair the way it's supposed to, you would say, that's a good hair dryer. If, uh, if you bought a horse to be used at a, uh, a rodeo, I had a friend who had a cutting horse, and uh, this horse was phenomenal at cutting out cows from the herd in rodeos, and he called it a, a good horse. If the medication you order from a doctor produces the desired result without a lot of side effects, you would call it good because it's doing what it's supposed to do. If you sign up for an online course and you have a professor who is uh, giving great feedback and clear assignments and there's a lot of uh, classmate interaction in the breakout sessions, you would say, this is a good class. And so it, it is rooted in this idea that something is performing in the way it was designed to perform. Does that make sense? Tell me if it does. Thank you. Okay. Because this is key to what Peter is saying to us. He's saying, add to your faith goodness. But what he is essentially saying is, add to your faith exactly the way you should live as a Christian should live. Right? So it's not just this abstract idea. It actually goes to the heart of how we live our lives, what we think our lives should be. And so that's what Peter is saying here. Add to your faith the fulfillment of what you are made to do. Add to your faith an engagement with your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ. Become a good or excellent follower of Jesus. So add to your faith this activity that is functioning the way God designed it. And of course, that begs the question, doesn't it? What kind of actions should a Christian be doing to fulfill the Christian life? What is it we're called to? What are the things that God would say, this is what a Christian should be engaged in? And I love the fact that Peter doesn't leave us hanging. He actually takes us to the end of this very book, 2 Peter 3, and describes the five things that should be a part of our lives. So would you take your Bibles, turn a few pages over, 2 Peter 3, it might even be on the same page for some of your translations, and read with me, it'll be on the screen for us as well, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now the second letter to you that I've written. I've written both of them, and notice what he says, as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to think about the Christian life in a manner in which it is good, it is wholesome, it's uplifting, it's beneficial to you. Verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets, so go to the Old Testament, be familiar with it, understand what they were saying and looking forward to Jesus. And the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So both of these letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, he has one purpose. And that is to remind us 
of how to live and think. And he says in both of them, I want you to remember the Old Testament prophetic voices. They were looking forward to Jesus. I want you to remember what Jesus himself has said to us about how to live. What are the commands and how to do that excellently? And he sets this in the context of the last days, which are our days. We are in the last days. And he lays out for us uh, these instructions that Christians need to know to fulfill their purpose in these last days. So notice as he goes on in uh, verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed uh, out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, but do not forget, here's this reminder again, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And notice how he ends this section. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done, or everything in it, will be laid bare. So this is the context of his commands to us. He wants us to understand we're living in a period of time that doesn't endlessly go on without God's intervention. And he, he admits, look, there are people in our world today, detractors, um, people who are doubters, mockers, scoffers, who will say to us, God is delinquent and unreliable. I mean, where is God today, right? They will say to us, God is distant and he is disinterested in us. He's not active in our world today. But I love the fact that God is not deterred by their accusations. His divine timepiece is right on schedule. And, and it's true, people in our world do deliberately today deny creation done by the work of God, that it was formed by hydrology. But God isn't silent about sin and evil. He is addressing it. He did before in the judge or in the flood, and he said, I will judge it again with fire in the days to come. So he says, here's three things to remember. Number one, God is faithful to keep his promises. He has not failed on one of them yet. He's faithful, and he will keep his promise to come again. Secondly, God's heavenly clock measures time differently. So we may wait for God to act in our lives on any given day while in heaven a thousand years go by. Or here on earth a thousand years may go by and in heaven one day has elapsed. And, and the point is simply this. God operates in a much different time zone than we do. His time is not ours. I love the way C.S. Lewis caught this in his book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So if you're a C.S. Lewis fan or you like to read the Chronicles of Narnia, he says Narnian time flows differently from ours. If you spend a hundred years in Narnia, you would still come back to our world at the very same hour of the very same day on which you left. And then, 
If you went back to Narnia after spending a week here, you might find that a thousand Narnian years had passed, or only a day, or no time at all. You never know until you get there. So this difference in timing is intended to prompt us to trust God, to wait patiently, because his times are different. And thirdly, we need to remember that God is patient with humanity. He is waiting, not wanting that any should perish, but all might come to repentance. How does God view humanity? With great patience. Those who are evil and wicked in our world today, he says, I desire them to come to repentance. So having set this context, he comes to these five things in 2 Peter 3, where he says to us, this is how you should live. Look at verse 11 of 2 Peter 3. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? There he answers the question for us. He poses it, and he brings answers to it. What kind of people should we be to be good people, adding to our faith goodness the way that we are designed to be? Well, notice, he, um, he gives us five things. Let's look at them in total. He says, number one, you ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, and here it is again, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in, in them of these matters, so we're in agreement. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. There are times you're going to read Paul and you go, Paul, I have no idea what you're writing. This does not make sense to me. And Peter says at that point, well, come read my book. It's a little more understandable than Peter. <laughs> Therefore, dear friends, notice this, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Remember in, in chapter 1, he says, if you do these things, you will not fall. So here he's bringing us back to this. I don't want you to be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So, how can we be good? How do we add that to our faith? Well, he says, number one, to fulfill our purpose as Christians, we should live holy and godly lives. You see this back in verse 11 and 12. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the kingdom of God, the day of God, and speed its coming. Isn't that amazing? It amazes me that God says you and I can speed up his timetable by the way that we live. Uh, the website Evidence Unseen, I took some time to look at that this week, it, it uh, reflects this reality. It says, Peter clearly taught that believers can advance or hasten the arrival of God's day by living godly lives. Now pause there for a second. Did you realize that the way you live your life today, this week, and on into the future can actually speed up the coming of the rapture, can speed up the coming of the end times, can speed up the day of God? And he says here, they go on to say, we think of the prayer, your kingdom come, in Matthew chapter 6. Surely the idea is that our prayer will have some impact 
when the kingdom arrives, but also since the spread of the gospel is necessary for Jesus to return. And he says that in Matthew 24, our ability to spread the gospel to all nations would need to be finished before Jesus' return. This would fit with the context of 2 Peter 3.9, the right where Peter argues that this is the very reason for God's patience in returning. So what does a holy life look like? Well, I brought with me this morning a holy shirt. So I have a variety of shirts in my closet. Most of them are blue. My wife will be the first to tell you that. Now, I'm not talking about this type of holy shirt that has holes around it and, and through it. This is actually one of my older shirts. Shirts in my home go through phases. They're brand new, and I wear them a lot. Then they become uh, rags. I've told Lisa, please don't throw out any of my T-shirts because I can use them as a rag, and then ultimately they become something to mop up the grease in the, in the garage. So this is not the holy shirt. This is my holy shirt. This is my Melikaliki Maka Christmas shirt, right? Now, do you know why this is holy and not any of those other ones? Those are all good shirts over there. This is my holy shirt, and the reason is it's dedicated to one thing, Christmas. The only time of the year I wear this shirt is when Christmas rolls around and we have a family party. And everybody knows Doug is there when Meli Kaliki Maka comes in the door. <laughs> These are all great shirts, but they're not my holy shirt. And in the same way, God looks at Christians and he says, Christians can be a Christian, but not all of them are holy. You can be an unholy Christian if you are not dedicated to one sole purpose. And that's Peter's point here. He says, when you are holy, the word literally means to be separated unto. That shirt sits in my closet for 12 months before it gets to live again. Because it is solely dedicated to that one thing. And so when Peter is talking to us about live holy lives, he's saying to us, look, as a Christian... You may not necessarily be holy, but you should. Because this holiness means that you are set apart to one purpose, the, the serving of Jesus Christ with your life, and that's the one thing that you live for. So we're being challenged. Set apart your life in your minds, in your determination to live solely for the name and cause of Jesus Christ. That's what we are to add to our faith. And he says, do it in a godly way. Now, remember last week we talked about godliness, and we discovered that it is this awe-struck devotion to something. And in this case, to God himself. We are amazed at God and who he is and what he does and what he's called us to do. And we say, God, with that attitude, I am going to dedicate my life to the service of you and your kingdom. So he says, number one, that's how we live our lives with goodness. Number two, he says, we fulfill our purpose as Christians by looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. He says, in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. This perspective is a natural outcome of our being set apart and awestruck in our devotion. That is, if our, if our current life is marked by a holy godliness then we are going to be naturally eager for a new setting in which to live that way, in the new heavens and new earth. And I love the fact that the Greek word here for new is kainos, not chronos. 
Kronos is new in time. It just shows up on the calendar. It's a, a, new, um, a new day, a, a new hobby. But here it is actually fresh, new in quality. It's unused. It's of a unique and um, an, uh, innovative nature. It's novel. It's something brand new, something never experienced before or thought about before. And Peter writes to us and says, you know, we need to be looking forward to this, this kainos, heaven, where we will experience a life that is vastly better than this one. It is created for us in a way to match the righteousness that Christ has given us. So he says, be forward-looking as you live holy and godly. Thirdly, to fulfill our purpose as Christians, we should make every effort, sound familiar, to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. See verse 14? Dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make that effort to have these things show up in your life, to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. And that word found means to be discovered, to come upon something, to, to be seen as, so that when we arrive in heaven, it will be a moment of joy and wonder. It'll be a moment of peace. It'll be a moment of being spotless and blameless. So we don't want to be like the child who has been out playing in the mud and muck after a rainstorm. And we hear the call for lunch, the upward call. It's time to come inside. And we come racing in with dirty shoes and filthy clothes. And who stops us at the door? Mom, right. It's not dad, it's mom. Don't come in here with those filthy shoes on. Take them off. My brothers and I were playing in an avocado grove across the street after a rainstorm. And we came back covered with avocado leaves and rotten avocados we'd been throwing at each other. And my mom stopped us at the door and she said, you boys are, there were four of us, you boys are not coming in this house until you take all your clothes off and I wash you down with the hose. Mom, we're out in the front of everybody and everything out here. You're going to do it here. She washed us all off. Right? Be, why? Because she wanted us to come in spotless and blameless and at peace with her. And what Peter is simply saying to us is, hey, Christian, you need to put behind you the swearing and the lying and the gossip and the anger and the resentment and the bitterness and the cheating and all of these things that are a part of the world and pursue a life that has less and less of those things in it. Now, we won't be perfect when we get to heaven, but we should be less and less marred by the effects of sin less and less accused of its wrongdoing. Those things ought to be following away. And he says we shouldn't have those painful scars, bruises, and slime of active sins. May we be at peace with God when we stand before him, rather than fearful, unafraid of his gaze, welcomed in by his loving arms. He says, number four, to fulfill our purpose as Christians, we need to be on our guard, not to be carried away by lawless men and women who are in error. You see that in verse 17? Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless men and women and fall from your secure position. Guarding against these individuals and the error of their ways is important because they are deceptive. We live in a world today with uh, truths or ideas out there that require constant vigilance. We have to watch out for individuals who are unrestrained in their lives, and, and their lives are absent of biblical truth. And I, I love how Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know that 
wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. This is the same idea that Peter is talking about here. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Isn't that true? Some of us have lived, and probably all of us have lived in different aspects of those lives. But he, he goes on to say, you were washed. God hosed you down. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So instead of living like the rest of the world, we have to stay clean and grow. And then finally, he says in verse 18, to fulfill our purpose as Christians, we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, this is the best part yet. This is the relational part of our faith. This is where he says, I want you to become more and more conversant and aware of Jesus' favor and kindness toward us, his grace. And I want you to understand how he leans toward us, adding his goodness and benefits to our lives. Uh, how we should then expand our knowledge. This is the word, interesting word, gnosis. It's knowledge by experience, not by observation. It's not just looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, I, I understand who he is. It's experiencing him. Experiencing him. On the 15th anniversary of our marriage, Lisa and I uh, took some time away, and uh, we agreed we would just give each other one small gift. And so I brought with me her favorite thing, because I had gotten to know her after 15 years, a box of C's candy. And she brought with her a small can of flaming hot peanuts, because she realized that's what he likes. And it's in the same way God says, you, you need to get to know me, Christ, and who I am, and, and my goodness, and grace, and, and just understand relationally who I am. This week, I went to the gym. I've been going back more and more uh, as my knee heals, and I've been listening to a podcast by Pastor Jack Hibbs, and it's a podcast called After the Saints Go Marching In. And it talks about what happens after the rapture, what happens in the plan of God when the Christians have been called away. And as he talked about these things, there were six things he said. I thought, oh, those are so good. I'm just going to quote them on Sunday. He said, there are six things that happen in our lives when we live the way Peter is talking about. Let me read them for you. He says, you will grow more resilient in this world to the temptation to live like this world. The lifestyles of the rich and the famous, the athletes, the stars, the wealthy, that will be less attractive. Two, you will have an increased strength to endure all of the challenging issues of life. Three, you will notice that uh, the more fixed you are on Christ's return... The thoughts and habits of sin will grow less and less powerful in your life. He says, fourthly, you will find yourself speaking and thinking and doing more from a heavenly perspective, doing the things God wants. Number five, he says, you'll develop a very high view of Scripture. It'll come alive to you because you know it's true. And number six, you will delight in the desire to serve and love others, looking for ministry opportunities. Be that kind of person who just says, I want more opportunity to serve God. When I was in Dallas, Texas, uh, going to seminary, I worked for a company called Wingtip Couriers. And I was one of the guys who drove one of their 60 Honda Civics throughout the Dallas Metroplex delivering professional documents. And we got a new hire one week. 
And we all shared the same radio, uh, actually with a concrete company at the same time. So you were constantly competing for the airwaves. And this new hire came on, and you know, the rest of us are thinking, you've got to be professional, and you've got to you know, use all of your 1040, 1030s, and all of that to you know, tell the base where you are. He comes on, and all he says at the beginning is, give me more packages. We're going, what? Give me more packages. And it just became this humorous thing where he would finish a delivery, and he would call the base, give me more packages. And we thought, he's crazy, because who wants to keep working that hard? But it was amazing how he made his way through the company. Give me more packages. And as Christians, we should have that same perspective. God, give me more service opportunities. Give me more places where I can affect the kingdom of God for you. Let me be the Christian that you designed me to be. So, this is the perspective that God and Peter say we should add to our faith. This is a way of life that is marked by specific things that God wants us to be and to do. And we do that not because it's something that we might pick as our first priority, but we do it because we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, the same chapter we referred to before, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Peter has the same perspective here. So, as we invite our worship team back up to help us wrap up this worship service, let me give you one last picture of the effort, the determination to live this kind of life. There's a gentleman who's turning 61 years old this year. His name is Borj Usland. There's a picture of him up there. In his lifetime, he's a Norwegian. He has served uh, as a Norwegian Special Forces officer. He's uh, worked as a deep-sea diver in the oil industry in the North Sea. But what he's most famous for is his Arctic explorations. And he's still doing them at the age of 61. He... Um, is setting new world records for Arctic and Antarctic explorations. But back in 1994, he was 31 years old, he did what no other human being had ever done before. And that is, he trekked solo for 52 days under a never-setting sun from Siberia, Russia, to the North Pole on skis. And he did it ultralight, so he never changed his clothes, he never took a bath, he took very little food supplies, he was unaided by dog sleds or by airdrops or snowmobiles. In fact, he walked the entire 620 miles on his skis without stopping. 52 days. I don't know how he did it. Did he sleep standing up? He never made camp. And finally, on April 23rd of 1994, he arrived at the North Pole and he made the only radio call of the entire trip to tell the news stations, I made it. And they said to him, what do you want to do now? And he said, I want lasagna and a bath. <laughs> it's been a long trip. And as I read his story this week, and I thought about what, what enabled him to do this kind of thing. There were two things in his story. He said, number one, every single morning the year before. So for 365 days the year before, every morning he would get up and drink a glass of olive oil to get his fat reserves up, right? I think we could do without that as Christians who are seeking to follow Christ. But the second thing he was, he said was, I had to steel my heart with determination 
to do whatever it took to complete the journey. And this is what Peter is telling us. He said, for you and I to complete our journey as Christians, we must make every effort. We must be determined to live out the life that Christ has given us in faith, but secondly, in goodness, being the follower of Christ that he has called us to be. And that requires just three things. Number one, an awareness that Jesus is coming again to reward men and women who follow him. An attitude, an awareness. Number two is the attitude that says, Jesus is my Lord. He is the ultimate authority in my life. And number three is determined actions that just say, I'm going to submit my personal desires to the will of God, and I am going to pursue spiritual growth as the greatest good. So would you stand with me this morning? We're going to close our service with Build My Life, and I'd like to have us just pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I think a passage like this truly does challenge us in our world today. Father, you've challenged me in my thinking about my own life and some habits I have that I want to change so that I can be more dedicated to the kingdom of God. Live out the Christian life that you've asked me to live so that I am a good follower of Christ. And so, Father, we admit in our own hearts this morning it, it takes a, a true shift in perspective for some of us to add to our faith goodness. I pray you'd help us to do that. Remind us every day that we belong to you, that you are our Lord and Savior who has relieved us from the kingdom of darkness. You brought us into the kingdom of light, that we are not here to please ourselves. We're here to please you. And Father, would you, one small step after another, guide us into becoming more and more like that. Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, we're grateful to you. And we pray as we just wrap this service up with Build My Life, that, Father, we would sing these words with a heartfelt thanks and a renewed determination to follow you faithfully and look forward to the day of your coming and actually even speed it up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>